and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Chris Cook is a double Olympian and a double Commonwealth Games champion. As a breaststroke swimmer, he competed in the 2004 and 2008 Summer Games and won twice in the 2006 Commonwealth Games in Melbourne, Australia. After competing for Great Britain for almost 10 years, he retired from competitive swimming and began a new journey. He has decided to help inspire, mentor, and coach people and organizations to embrace challenge and change for their optimal performance. He has shared his story with over 400,000 people, focusing on inspiring future athletes. Chris and his wife, Erica, run their own learn to swim business called Swim Buddies, which helps empower hundreds of kiddos to learn how to swim and gain valuable life lessons along the way. Chris Cook, what an honor. Welcome to Balanced Body Radio. Oh, thanks, Casey. What an introduction that was. Thank you. <laughs> You've done a lot of cool stuff. I had to cut a lot of things out of there, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it's amazing. You know, it's interesting when you look back over your own view, isn't it? And you you make a start on things and you, you kind of have these big aspirations, but you never quite think what it's going to look like when you actually get there. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, it really is. I mean, the list of all the competitions that you've been in and placed well and won and, oh my goodness, it's like a, an entire page of it on itself. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Oh, cool. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you. Absolutely. So you're calling in from England. How are things going over there? Yeah, good. We're slowly coming out of a lockdown. Um, we've just extended it for another month, but rightly so. But yeah, things are starting to, I would say, look more optimistic. I, I'm an optimist anyway. You know, I'm a natural optimist. Um, I don't believe it's it's possible to be positive all the time, <laughs> but I definitely believe it's 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 good to be optimistic. Which for me, optimism is just about making sure that you understand that change is always the constant and actually with change good things can happen so do you know what Casey I'm more excited now than ever now we're coming out of the pandemic and you know new opportunities are starting to hit on the horizon it's, it's a great time man that's great I mean we're just so glad you would come on here we already mentioned in the introduction that change is a big focus of what you do with your coaching now and I think you're right like it's the only real constant and so you can either try to fight it all the time or you can kind of roll with the punches a bit yeah, definitely. And you know, like I, I work a lot with a lot of my clients, one-to-one -one small group work and businesses. And that's the one thing I say, you know, just take off the handbrake, just take the handbrake off because that's the resistance bit. And then the next stage from that is to realize there was never a handbrake in the first place. <laughs> it's all just psychological. It's, it's not there. And, I, you know, I talk about the concept of stepping out of our own way. And I genuinely, genuinely believe there's no such thing as industry problems. There's just human problems. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. And so many of those are just ones that we make up in our heads anyway. They aren't actually real problems. So true. It is so true. Mm. Well, I want to talk about your career and some lessons that you learned along the way. I want to start out with with your starting point. When did you, when did you first... Um, fall in love with swimming and you can, I think you've got a, a special story about a little trophy that you got. Can you talk to us about that? Oh, yeah. So yeah, going back to when I was first inspired, um, it was probably 1988 watching the Olympics on TV. Um, I was sat in my granddad's house just watching it on TV and I watched a guy called Adrian Mulhouse who was a great British swimmer and he won a gold medal in the men's 100 meters breaststroke of all things. And he won it by a hundredth of a second. And I just remember watching it thinking, wow, I want to be that guy. I want to be him. 
And I I turned to my granddad and I said, that's what I want to do. And my granddad said, well, hey, if you dream big and start small, I guess anything's possible. (laughs) And that became my mantra. That became the thing I started to live by. Joined a swimming club the very next week and um, pretty scared walking in the building, hit by the smell of chlorine and the heat and the uninviting atmosphere, if you like, and the noise. And before I knew it, I overcome my fear, got in, got going. And little did I realize that would be the first stroke of, of, of many. Um, and yeah, that story about the trophy is a great one. I remember turning up to um, a few years later, obviously I started to become quite a good swimmer. I turned up for this, a school gala with 20, I think it was 23 other students ready to race. We were reasonably young. And when we got into the pool or got into the building, about 20 of the team decided it would be a really good time to tell the teacher that they couldn't swim. Wow. <laughs> so it was left it was left up to me and my best friend, Neil Watson, to swim like something like 36, 37 races uh, between us. <laughs> and wow. I got one tiny, tiny little trophy. And it was, yeah, it just reminds me, whenever I see it, it reminds me of, just stepping forward you know that moment we all get them even in business in life and all our personal lives you get those moments when you want to step back you want to recoil back and ever since I was young from a young age you know sport has taught me that in those moments that's the moment you've got to step up and step forward and there's so much to gain by doing it and you know that trophy whenever I see it reminds me of that fact alone wow that's such a cool story. I'm, I'm so glad you still have the trophy. That was going to be something I was going to ask you. That's great. So you were inspired yeah. You were inspired by a breaststroker from the very beginning. Did you just decide that that's the stroke that you were going to be good at? Or did was that a process? Because the, the four strokes in swimming are all very mm. different, aren't they? Yeah, breaststroke is very, very different from the other three, actually. Um, you're absolutely right. But, you know, it was it was the stroke I loved. It was the stroke that naturally I gravitated towards. I, I, I didn't have any grand designs at the start to be a breaststroke swimmer. So it wasn't like I watched this guy and thought, right, that's the event. That's the one I want to do. It was it was more of a process, like you said. Um, my coach started to help me to believe in myself. I started to get great results off the back of it. And then it just naturally started to become the event that I got great results in and I loved so I don't know whether I was just super lucky or there was kind of some fate stepped in the way I am I do believe in serendipity I do believe in fate and I believe in all that and you know I, I, yeah I think there was something in it there whereby I kind of cast out that cast out that thing to get to get that bite on the end if you like cast mm. out the, the line mm. um so yeah I wonder if I wonder if on some non-physical level I wonder if I kind of pre-designed it in some sort of way who knows mm, wow that's super cool it just sounds like something you were always passionate about and really drawn towards is there is there a special event yeah. um as you were you know kind of transitioning from you know a child to like a teenager is there a special event that stands out in your mind yeah there's quite a few actually um that i mean one in particular when i was around about the age of 15 i'd, I'd gone to a competition and i didn't swim particularly well um, I was 15 years old. I was making decisions and choices that were based around the sport. And I was watching all my friends go off to birthday parties, Christmas occasions, all these things throughout the year. And I was constantly saying, oh, no, i got to train. And they would say, hey, come on, it's only one practice. You can miss one. <laughs> I wish I had a pound 
for every time somebody said that to us, I'd be a rich guy. <laughs> and it wasn't, and it was this one particular competition and I didn't swim very well. And it was the fine, almost like the final straw. And I said to my coach, that's it. I'm done. And he pulled me at one side. He said, listen, there's far more kicks up the butt than there are gold medals. Wow. Once you get your head around that, you're three quarters of the way there. And it sounds so simple, a phrase and a, a conversation like that, but it really started to line things up for me to go, okay, well, if I have to take 30 beatings to get one gold medal, there's one down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and that's the way I started to work the math on it. That's the way I started to work the numbers on it. And just to look at it like, hang on a second, I've got to break through some pretty resilient moments in order to really take this under my skin as a body armor. And that's how I kind of started to turn the corner, if you like. Mm. Wow. I mean, you made such a really good point. It's something that I see around here where I am. I mean, you're just outside of London. Is that correct? Um, We're about five hours north of London, actually. I see. Yeah, Yeah, gotcha. So within five hours, you can drive to some Olympic venues. I believe it was the 2012 Games were there. And so not only have you experienced the Olympic Games as a competitor, but also, you know, to be there, to be around that energy. And and we're in Salt Lake. And so we kind of get to experience that, too. And Mm. it's really interesting because the speed skating team is based out of here. And I've I've met a lot of those athletes. They're they're here. This is where Mm. they train. And they they don't necessarily get normal childhoods and you, you kind of see it reflected in them yeah. that, that that's, that's a huge sacrifice. If you want to be top level in some of these sports, you don't necessarily get to grow up the way other people do. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think it's all about making choices. That's what it comes down to for me. You know, it, I don't think there's such a thing as sacrifice. It feels like a sacrifice when you're given something up. But if you stay in a sacrifice mindset, you'll only ever see the loss. Mm. And I say this to my clients all the time. You know, if you've got one foot in one camp and one foot in the other, you're going to get middle of the road results. So that's your choice, that. Mm. But if you step across to one side and commit to it with one eye over the other side, then you're going to get mediocre results as well. We have to commit with whole body and soul, everything in. And, you know, that's that for me is one of the most important parts because when we're striving towards excellence, excellence is two things for me. It's boring and it's painful. And it's boring in the sense that it's repetitive. If you want to be world-class at something, you've got to keep repeating it. You've got to keep repeating it. You've got to show up. You've got to love that process. You've got to love the hard work. It's not always about working towards that outcome. We can keep that as the North Star. And when we're making those choices and decisions, because that's what they are, they're not sacrifices, we have to keep in mind that that boring and painful process is leading somewhere. And we've got to trust it. We've got to trust it. You know, Michael Phelps's coach, um, who I'm, I'm sure most of your audience will know, it's Bob Bowman. He says, you know, you've got to love and trust the process. And he has had countless Olympians on teams. He's constantly on the American team, which is a competitive team. It's the most competitive swim team in the world and has been for decades. You know, when someone, a coach is saying that, you know, after the career he's had, you've got to trust that he knows what he's talking about. Wow. Dude, that was so well said. I love that. That's such a different way to frame some of the challenges we face. And you're right that that if you make that decision, like you said, like it makes it easier to, you know, deal with what you need to deal with to, to succeed in whatever you're trying to do. I, I love that perspective. 
you must have you must have yeah. experienced a lot of setbacks and challenges on your way to where you got competitively. Can you describe like a time that you had a a really difficult situation that you had to overcome? Yeah, I've I've had countless oh, crikey, um, injuries, illnesses. There was a real big one when um, I should have very very easily made the Commonwealth Games. We had quite a competitive event. We've always had a really good pedigree of breaststroke swimmers in in Great Britain. Um, we've seen Adam Peaty now, who's taken the world by storm. He's seconds ahead of the rest of the field. And he, he looks like a swimmer who's come back from the future. He's that far ahead. He's in, wow. he's incredible. And we've always had that really strong pedigree. And, and around the era that I was racing, um, we had five in the top 20 in the world. So if you turned up to a local competition, you were against world-class athletes. You were against swimmers who were in the top 20 in the world. And I remember trialing out for the Commonwealth Games and it was due to be hosted in Manchester in England, um, only an hour and a half away from my hometown. So I thought, well, I can eat, I can make this team. It's mine. And I didn't. I was four one hundredths of a second off making the team. And wow. I had a pretty a pretty dismal, yeah, I had a pretty dismal um trials to get there. And I left feeling just heartbroken. And I remember getting home. Think what am I going to do? I took a holiday. I had to watch the Commonwealth Games, and I watched some of my teammates go on and win medals. And it was in that moment that I sat there writing some notes, watching the Commonwealth Games from home. And I thought, I've got a choice here. I can either be bitter about this or get better. And it was that bitter or better mindset. Which one do I want? Because there's a clear black and white choice here. There's no grey on this. You either use what's happened and move on and learn from it and grow from it and allow it to change you in a really good way or you stay really bitter comparing that story with some other stories that are bitter as well and you just build up a, a catalogue of them and it was in that moment that I realised that that's what that moment was there to teach me it was there to help me find that turning point mm. and I've got to say after then from 2003 onwards my career just took off Wow. And four years later, I went on not just to um, get on the team. I went to the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne, Australia, and I won two gold medals and a silver, and it was a great week in the office. Wow. <laughs> it was brilliant. Wow, that's amazing. What was what was the feeling like? We'll jump ahead a little bit. I'm just so curious. What was it like to stand on that podium mm. and hear the, the national anthem play? Oh, it is amazing. It's, it's an addiction, it's an addiction. People say, you know, I used to hear athletes say it all the time, as soon as I get down, I want to get back up. And that feeling, there's nothing like it. You know, looking into the crowd, seeing your loved ones, looking into the crowd, seeing your teammates, that moment's there for you. And I remember just seeing a sea of flags and people, and it's just amazing. And, you know, the feeling of going through the race and the, the picking up the medal, it's just the most incredible feeling. Yeah, you want to get back there. Wow. You want to get back there. Yeah, that sounds absolutely amazing. I think that's everybody's dream to be able to experience that. I don't know where this fits in time-wise, but another challenge I wanted to bring up, I've heard you talk about this before. You earned a scholarship somewhere and and um, had it almost like taken away from you. Can you tell us a little bit about that story and where that fits into your personal story? Yeah, so I'm from a small town called South Shields up in the northeast of England, um, pretty small town, and 
the, the big city around there is Newcastle, um, the city of Newcastle. And I made the decision to move to Newcastle to move clubs and to also move to university. So I wanted to go study there, I studied sports science, and I managed to get myself a scholarship in the first year. And the scholarship was pretty good. You know, it was it was a little bit of cash in the back pocket. It wasn't amazing, but it was enough to get by. All your fees were paid for. You could tap into a strength and conditioning coach. You could tap into a physiotherapist, a psychologist, all these support services that I'd never had before. So I was 19 years old in this big city thinking this is going to be cool. Got to university, first day at uni, and I got called in to say, oh, by the way, that scholarship, um, we've messed up a little bit and you haven't made the grade, actually. You're off the team. You can still swim, but you're going to have to, you're going to, have to pay all these bills and you're going to have to do all this stuff. And I'd reorganised my life to move from out of home to move to Newcastle. And, yeah, that was hard. That was hard. I had to. I had to go back and work as a lifeguard. Um, I still went to uni, so I worked as a lifeguard. I worked in a in a pub and a bar on a nighttime, in a nightclub on a Saturday oh. night. Oh. And it, it was honestly, when I write it down and I look at it, I think, how did I even survive that year? But I got enough cash to swim. I got enough. Um, I got enough behind me to get back on the scholarship program the very next year. I got on it and I, and I, yeah, I used it as a platform, as a stepping stone. It was a tough year, that one. Wow. That's amazing. What an amazing example of like learning through the process, like you've described and taking a challenge Mm. and making it work in your advantage. Describe to us the process of actually qualifying for the national team and then also qualifying for the Olympics, the 2004 Olympics in Athens. Yeah, so um, most championships that you go to, so European championships for us, um, world championships um, and the Commonwealth Games, they, they have a, a selection criteria. So you have to achieve for the um, European championships. They might take four breaststrokes from us. So that's pretty good. But only two are allowed to qualify through to the finals. So even if you're placed third out of all everyone in Europe, if you're the third Britain, you're taken out and, and other people are placed ahead of you, which is not so great, but you know you still get that experience of going to the European champs. When it gets to the Olympics, that's very different. The Olympic trials is only first two and you have to achieve the qualifying time. Now, for Athens and for Beijing, it was the top 10th time in the world. So you had to be in the top 10 and you had to be the first or second Britain wow. to touch the wall. That was really, really interesting because in the year 2000 for Sydney, we had a different performance director, which meant that the, the criteria that they put in place was just the first two Britons go. So it didn't matter what time you got. So you could be in the top 50 in the world and still go to the Olympics. A new performance director came in, Bill Sweetnam. He's a fantastic guy. He came in and he was an Australian coach, still is, and he completely changed things and turned things around. He moved the goalposts and said, at the next Olympics, you need to be in the top 10 in the world. And everyone went crazy because at the time that he set that target, out of a team of potential 50 people who could make it, only one had the qualifying time. Wow. And he stuck with it, Casey. He stuck with it. And people were fighting him on it. They argued with him on it. And he stayed solid for those three years leading up. 
And what is really interesting about this story is in 2004, when we went to the trials in Sheffield in England to qualify for the Olympic Games, 47 people made the cut. Wow. And it just blows my mind that in that short space of time that people went from handbrake on resistiveness to, hey, this guy in budging, let's get rocking and rolling. Wow. <laughs> and it was just such a cultural change that needed to happen. It needed to happen. It needed that person to come in and just go, here's the flag in the sand. It's not moving. Wow. That's crazy. And yeah. I, I was one of those, that's what was one of those guys. And I'm grateful for crossing the path of someone like Bill who just <laughs> changed swimming in this country. Wow. That's amazing. It's a good thing too, that so many people qualify because if it was just one person, that would pretty much be the shortest uh, qualification meet ever. <laughs> 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 Absolutely. <laughs> wow. So so by holding that standard, it just elevated everybody's performance. Yeah, and I think I think that's what we often need. We need a bit of a we we need that. You know, that I always say to people, you know, you can get inspiration from anyone and anywhere, but you only get motivation from yourself. We believe we're motivated motivated by other people. We're not. We're motivated by ourselves. That's our job. And but we can be inspired by other people and other things. That's absolutely true. Mm. And once you once you realize that motivation is just your motive for action, what's your reason to move? That's when we can start really shift mountains. Mm. Wow, that's so cool. I love that. So it's 2004. You go to qualify and you actually qualify. What does that feel like to know that you are heading to your first Olympic Games? Oh, it, it was amazing. It was amazing. You know. They, as you touch the wall at the trials, on the scoreboard is the uh, your name, obviously, and the letter Q next to your name at the end. That means you've qualified. You've got the qualification time. Um, at my first Olympic trials, I was second, so I was the second Britain. So what they do is they say you've qualified, but then it's subject to selection panel. So they take all of the fastest first Britons first, and then if they've got enough funding, they go through the second wave of people who are the second placed. So if you're one of the slowest second place people, you don't get to go. So there was a little bit of waiting. There was a little bit, but we kind of worked out the math that I would have to really be pushed down the pile, which wasn't going to happen. Um, so I kind of booked my place. And it just, yeah, it's just amazing when Team GB start contacting you and say, congratulations, you you're getting all your kit and I, I love free stuff anyway. So I got sent a lot of free kit <laughs> <laughs> with the Olympic rings on. And yeah, it's just kit day is the most amazing experience going and getting kitted out for everything from a suit, you know, a dinner suit, a formal suit, right through to your swimsuits is just, it's epic. Wow. The uh, quote unquote re recording studio here at Boundless Body Radio is um, me sitting on the floor in my second bedroom, staring up at all of my cycling kits. And I love all of my cycling kits, especially <laughs> the one with our brand. But you know what? Nobody ever gave one to me. I had to go buy each and every one of those. So that's that's pretty cool that you got, <laughs> got enough status to have them give one to you. That's great. So what was it like in Athens when you actually arrived on scene, like in Greece? What What was that like? Yeah, do you know, it was really interesting, Greece. Um, it was a phenomenal Olympics because it was back to the the home of the Olympic Games, where yeah. it all originated from. So they made a big spectacle of kind of 
brushing up all of the old sites, all the old amphitheaters, all those th- sorts of things, the old stadiums. That was really cool. But the pool was just brilliant. And they timed the um, evening um, finals, the semifinals and the finals, just perfectly. So as the sun was going down, they would kind of put the lights on, the music would start to go, and it was just that special Olympic switch that happens once every four years. Wow. There's just nothing like it. There is, And I remember walking out to the semifinal in the men's 200 breaststroke, and I just remember walking out, and as we walked out of the stadium into the into the from underneath the seats to the arena, just the cool air hitting you and the atmosphere. Everybody stands up and the noise of people's chairs just hitting the back of their chairs. It's just yeah, I can still hear it and feel it now. It's amazing. I chills, just chills <laughs> everywhere. You reminded me of something. Yeah. The, the Greece, yeah. the the Athens games, the 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 pool was outdoors. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, wow. it was. Wow. Yeah, it was an outdoor pool. It was, it was phenomenal. It was already built, so they kind of just built around it and made it look even more special with the big stands. I mean, and, and the sad thing, there's only one sad thing about that is, is that it just got closed and never really used again afterwards. Mm. And it's that that is really sad about some of the big cities. You know, once they host it, they kind of let that go. But then there's places like London and, like you say, Salt Lake, where they actually use the facilities and it inspires the next generation. And I think that for me, that's the beautiful thing about the Olympics. You know, when you have Olympic champions within your own camp, it helps others believe, well, if he can do it, I can do it. If she can do it, I can do it. And it's that belief that just raises the bar like nothing else, like nothing else. Wow. Wow. That's so cool, man. Okay. So how did your race go? How was your performance in those Olympics? You know, it, it was it was a solid performance. I probably got out exactly what I was expecting. Um, it was my first Olympics. Obviously, I wanted to get in the final and just narrowly missed out. And I had a, a solid performance, but I wanted more. I wanted to stand on the podium. Um, and that's what I was working towards. And when I got on the flight on the way home, I realized, and I said to my coach, I realize even more now than ever that I've been to an Olympics, that I want to stand on podiums. That's what I want. I want to hear the national anthem. I want to hear it played for me. And that's what I want to do. And that's what we kind of started working towards. And I had a sports psychologist, a guy called Simon Hartley, who's still a really good friend now. And I remember walking into his office one day to have a sports psychology meeting. And he said, um, hey, what, what is it that you'd love to achieve? And I've been working with him for quite a while. And I said, well, I said, I want Olympic gold. Doesn't everyone? He said, well, you didn't say that. <laughs> I said, well, Everybody knows that. And he said, do they? And he, re- he was really questioning us. I was like, hang on. Yeah, of course they do. Everybody wants this. And he said, not until you actually say it, get it down on paper and you're seeing it every day. And that's what we started to do. And I realized that in swimming, actually, it wasn't just about Olympic gold for me. It was about laying down my best and knowing I'd done everything. That's what was really important. And whilst I can stand here and say, you know, I'm not an Olympic champion, I've got as close as I possibly could do. My highlight, if you like, of my whole career came three years after I retired from swimming. And it was when I was looking back, I was really down about my swimming because I thought I failed. I really felt like I failed something. And it wasn't until about three years after I'd finished swimming that I, I sat there kind of reflecting over my own shoulder. And somebody said, 
what would you say to the nine-year-old you who started the journey? I was like, well, say you, you laid down your best and you need to be proud. And that person just went, maybe that's what you need to hear right here right now, right? Mm. And it was that that completely changed my mindset. And I realized in that moment, such a bizarre time, I realized in that moment that I'd laid down my best and that's what real success is. Real success is the person you become in the pursuit of your goals. It's the person you become from the moment you step in the arena to the moment you call it a day on it. It's that journey. That's the real success. Because if you think about it, Casey, that's the person you take everywhere. But we look at things like the outward success is a medal around our neck, cash in the bank, you know, all these figures and numbers that we float around. Yeah, they're really nice indicators, but they're not a scratch on how you feel when you go, that's my best and I'm proud of it. Not a scratch. Wow. That, and that's what I realized. That is such a great life lesson. I mean, I know, I know Olympians, I know medalists. And if you ask them like, oh my goodness, like, why are you not wearing your medal? Like right now, you should have it on all the time. <laughs> and they like, oftentimes those medals are like, you know, wrapped in a flag in a drawer or I can't even remember where it is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not necessarily, you know, yeah. the, the end it, it's, it's like you said, it's that journey. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because you mentioned yeah. like really like committing to doing to, to qualifying for the 2008 games. And I don't think most people yeah. realize what level of commitment and, and dedication that takes. The Olympics is unlike any other event. You have four entire years between games. Obviously, there's other competitions and other things that you do, but you wait four years for one moment. And, and those four years are training and eating and the mindset that you talked about. Can you tell us what, what the day-to-day grind that you committed to when you committed to going back to 2008, what did that look like? And how, how difficult psychologically is that to keep in mind that I've got to do this, this hard for another four years? Yeah, that, you know, when you really put it like that, it does feel like that and it can be really overwhelming. And I think this is where a lot of people get it wrong. And I think I actually got it right and worked it out. It was, it was never about the four-year cycle. It was about turning up on Tuesday and laying down the best I could on that Tuesday and waking up on Wednesday and laying down the best I could on that Wednesday. And if I could pull my team together to link that hard work to that North Star in four years' time, i.e. the Olympics, then that's what we were there to do. And, and that's what we did as a team. We looked up at the North Star and went, that's where we're going. Then we got our heads down and we spent the majority of our time just refining the process. And it comes back to the point I was making earlier on. I do believe human beings get too obsessed with the outcome. We look at four-year cycles. We look at things in the future and we almost obsess on future past, future past, future past. When actually the great stuff, the real stuff happens right here, right now. And it was it was in those moments. So when when I was training at Newcastle, City of Newcastle Swimming Club, I had a great coach, a guy called Ian Oliver. <clears throat> Fantastic guy. And he was he was so committed. There was nobody more committed than him. And when you're being led by someone who's so committed like that, it's easy to for you to follow in and just sit along with that energy. It's incredible. And when you walked into, it was a very, very old pool in the city centre, very old pool, over 100 years old. 
And it was originally a 33 and a third yard pool converted into a 25 meter. So you can tell how old it is. Wow. And really up high, old Victorian building, right up high where the ceiling meets the walls. They, um, They placed flags of nations all around the world, these huge sort of eight by four foot flags, so huge. And there was probably about 30 of them around the pool. And what they were was, they were the City of Newcastle Swimming Club's Hall of Fame. And what they would do is they would take down the flag. Let's just say you went to represent Great Britain in Italy. They would take down the Italian flag. They would stitch your name into it and then place it back up there. So over the course of time, there was a list of names that had represented Great Britain at various countries. But right at the very end, right front and centre that you were swimming towards, with two flags, the Commonwealth Games flag on the right and on the left, the Olympic flag. And there was very, very few names on those flags, Casey, very few. And I remember my first session walking in and I was a bit frightened of, of going to this club because it, it was a big club and it had Olympians already there. And I walked in and I saw those flags and I just closed my eyes and I visualised my, my name on them. And... You know, lo and behold, it happened. But the, the the bit in between was, you know, on those Monday mornings in a cold November in the UK when it's miserable and the weather's coming at you from every angle, you know, they're the moments you've got to look up those flags and realise what you're tapping into. They're the moments that you've got to draw inspiration and then get your head down and just put another block of excellence in place. That's your That's your mission, to just squeeze every last drop out of that one session. And that's what I believe starts the process of just placing that gap between being good to great. That's what helps you make that step up. Wow. Man, that is such a great life lesson. I see it all the time. And, and you know, generally like endurance athletes, they'll they'll sign up for an event that it's, comes on a calendar. They've got an eight-month training block. And that event comes and goes in the blink of an eye. And people miss the fact yeah. that, yeah, every, it was just like you said, in the in-between. It was showing up on a Tuesday morning. That's where the magic is. That's yeah. such a great lesson. And so, so many people end up missing it and get really disappointed once they finish an event and that event comes and goes and it's over. It's so true. And, and I get a lot of athletes come to me and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm worried. I've got worried nerves. And I say to them, you know, worried nerves and excited nerves are the same nerves. They just come from two ends of a different continuum. So if you imagine worried on one side, on the right-hand side, and excited down on the left, well, actually, to move from worried to excited, the gap in between is preparation. That's it. Mm. And it sounds simple because it is just not easy. But this is the bit that people get wrong is simple and easy aren't the same things. That's right. They're That's very, right. very different. And this is where, you know, it looks super, super complicated, but actually it was a very simple process of what is on that board that that coach is writing up for me to do and I was walking in there going, I need this, need this, don't need this, don't need this, need this, need this, because I knew where I was going. And so that preparation had a purpose, and it was practicing with purpose that gave me that opportunity to turn up to those events. Yes, I was a bit nervous, but I was excited to show the world what I'd been working on. That's what my mission was. Mm. When I was stood up there and I was racing at the trials, racing at the Olympics, racing at the Commonwealth Games, World Championships, I wasn't racing the guys either side. I was laying down my best trying to show the world, look look what I've done, look what I've been working on in some 
horrible grotty pool in the city of Newcastle in, in England on a cold November morning. Look what I've been doing. And yeah, you're right. There's a, there's a big life lesson there. Big life lesson. I love that so much. That's great. So yeah. So you're doing all these races, you win double gold in 2006, at the Commonwealth games, and then you go to Beijing in 2008. What was that experience like compared to your first Olympic games? Um, way better. Um, I'll be honest with you, Casey, you know, my individual event, I should have moved through to the final and had a really good position for fighting for a medal. Um, it was a slight outside chance. I'd gone in fifth best in the world, fifth fastest in the world that year. Um, I just didn't pull it together in that race, which, you know, for a long time haunted me, but I, I got given the relay spot. I got given the relay spot, which was the four by medley relay at the, at the very end. And it was the last race when Michael Phelps picked up his eighth gold medal. We made it through the heat semi-final into the final as a British squad. We smashed the British record. I had one of the fastest splits I've ever done in a relay. One of the fastest splits out the field. Wow. And it really, yeah, it's one of those moments. We finished sixth in the final. But it's one of those hidden, what I call a hidden success. You know, it wasn't a public success as such. Um, it didn't hit the headlines or anything like that. But for me, I walked away from the Olympics knowing that I'd laid down my very last race was an Olympic final. And I feel immensely proud of that. I feel immensely proud. Did I want more? Of course I did. That's just the nature of the competitor. But when it's all done and dusted, if you can turn around and say, that's my best and I'm proud of it, then you've, you've won, you've won the game. Mm. Yeah. I mean, all you're doing is putting your expectation and your happiness into something you can control versus something else, which you absolutely have no control over. You don't know what other people are doing. You don't know how they're going to compete on race day, but as long as you're anchoring your beliefs into that, what you said is just so beautiful. Like, like what, what did you, what did you do? How did you do it? Did you, did you give it your absolute best? And it's such a cool thing to hear you say that that's something that you're the most proud of. When did you decide that yeah. you would be done with competitive swimming and was it difficult to walk away from the sport? Um, it, it wasn't difficult to walk away. I, I realized I realized Beijing was going to be my last um, swim, if you like. And there's, there was a reason for that was I just couldn't see myself going on for another four years. I just didn't feel the same way about Olympic gold like I did the previous four years. And I knew something was a little bit different. I genuinely, Casey, had nowhere. I felt as though I had nowhere to go. I felt as though my skills weren't applicable in any industry. And yeah, it was really an, an interesting three years. And I'll tell you the thing I was really frightened of. I was frightened of starting again. I was frightened of becoming a beginner again. I was frightened to be a novice. I was fearful. And I almost had this feeling. In fact, I did have this feeling that my best years were behind me. And I was only just turning 30, not even halfway through a kind of normal standard life, if you like. And having a cocktail of feelings like that was, was really bizarre because we're hearing a lot now about athletes transitioning out of the sport. Well, there was nothing like that back in 2008. No one was really talking about it where there's a lot of support mechanisms now. There's a lot of help, a lot of podcasts, all sorts of things where no one was really talking about it back then. You know, people would come up to us and go, so what are you doing now then? Or they would say, you can't get a normal job. I guess you're going to have to go high fly somewhere else. And you think, oh, my God, 
I've got these imposter moments happening on the inside of me anyway <laughs> without taking on that comment. Um, but, you know, the best bit of advice I ever got was from my granddad when I was younger. And I, I reflected back on that again. And he said, you know, whenever you're stuck, whenever you don't know where to go, just give that one thing in front of you 100% of your attention and focus and energy and just watch it change and grow. And I didn't really know what he meant until many years later. And obviously he passed away and I started to reassess where I was going with my life. And it was that patch where I decided, you know what, regardless of what job I go to now, even if it's got no connection to the next step, I'm going to do it like it's my best and only job I need to do. And Casey, honestly, my life yet again just took off again. And I do believe, I do believe in staying in the moment as best we can because the mind is obsessed with the future and the past. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I remember a quote that was so influential in my life as well from, I think it was a Dale Carnegie book, um, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living, which I, I'm going to paraphrase, I'm going to goof this up, but basically said like the best way to prepare for the future, really, truly the only way you can prepare for the future is do your best today. Give whatever you can today, lay it down when it's enough. And that is the only true way that you can really prepare for the future. I, I love that, man. What a cool lesson from your grandfather. I'm curious, like, you know, when you started yeah. to realize that, that that's what you needed to to do when did you realize that coaching was going to be your next step was it just kind of reflecting back on all the lessons that you had learned in your career yeah a bit of that and a bit of kind of I started mentoring I started trotting around the UK um mentoring young people and, and predominantly disadvantaged young people so people who are either in a really tight spot or not particularly showing the world their best traits that sort of thing and going from young offenders prisons you know, young offenders units, really troubled schools, working with some really tricky young people, if I'm honest with you. And I got a real kick out of just helping them trip over the answers themselves. I, I got a kick out of that. I got a kick out of just, you know, going in, doing a session with them and just coming in from the left side and just throwing in a comment, seeing how they handled it and really challenge their story because for a lot of those young people, everybody else knows their story because they're the bad kids. They're the kids that are not doing great things. And they're, they, they, they believe their story stronger than anybody else. They believe they're bad kids, so they act it out. So they get out in the world and they go, I'm a bad kid, remember? Look what a bad kid can do. And I started to coach and mentor young people like that, and I realized that actually I can start to spread this out and work with people in businesses. And now I coach in businesses around the world. And um, I speak on platforms, which is the, the internet and, you know, zoom and teams has just enabled me to reach further afield. It's just been the most amazing year. I know some tough things have happened this year, but it's been the most amazing year, but it kind of stemmed from just getting a kick out of watching somebody else, not see their blind spot and me help them just, shine a torch on it. I love that. Wow, man. Okay. I'm so glad you went there. I was specifically going to ask you about that as, as a coach and or mentor, somebody who's in front of crowds. Um, you know, I know specifically a really good friend of mine who is an entertainer and he made this post in April, which was like equal parts, like funny, but also like really sad is like this blank calendar of open white space where there was nothing. Every single gig he had lined up in 2020 wiped out, gone. Mm. 
And he told me that there was a certain number of, you know, entertainers around the world that, you know, they, most of them folded, like most of them just, okay, I guess I'll go get a job at a hardware store, but a select few mm -hmm. decided to work really hard, refine themselves, be agile. And now coming out of mm -hmm. the pandemic, they're in the most demand because they found a different way through a challenge. And I think it's so interesting and cool that like, dude, you, you probably couldn't think of a worse situation for somebody like you doing coaching with groups and it, with organizations, mm -hmm. individual people, close quarters, the, a pandemic would be like the, the perfect storm of the worst thing to happen. Yet you made that the best year of your life. I, I'm just so curious about what steps mm -hmm. you, you made to do that. Did you, did you go through a bit of depression at first? Were you confused or did you just get right to work and find a new way? Mm -hmm. I did actually, I did the first one. So I'm a very um, reactive person. So emotionally, I'm very reactive. Um, anybody who knows me really well knows that in certain circumstances, I'm not very cool and collected. <laughs> My first reaction is very emotive. And I have to watch that because over the years when I was younger, that used to really catch me out. It doesn't catch me out as much now. I'm a bit older. And I understand now there's a big difference when we're reacting. It's very powerful. And we need to very, le very quickly learn to respond because that's thoughtful. And that's rational. And that's working out the, the data, if you like, the facts and the figures. So I know and I knew when the pandemic kicked off and I lost all my work. I lost all my income from both wow. businesses. My learned to swim business, had to fold that for a while. All my, my, all my work for the next six months was just wiped and cancelled. And we were in a little bit of, dare I say it, free fall, you know, emotionally. And that went on for a few weeks. And but I know myself well enough now. And I think this is what happens when you learn to perform. You learn yourself more than anything. It's not about learning circumstances. You learn about how you respond and react in those. So I knew it was going to take a little bit of time for the respondent side of me to kick in. And about three weeks in, it started to kick in. Now, if I go back to the swimming days just for a second, when I was training to get to the top, what I was really doing is, I was working hard so that when I got out of the competitions, my mind, my subconscious mind would walk out and look for the similarities and not get distracted by the differences. That's essentially what we're training to do. And I knew that instinctively. I was walking out there to look for the similarities. So, for example, the differences at the Olympics are more mums and dads in the audience. There's a fair few more of them <laughs> than at your local meet. But the similarity is the blocks are the same. The lane ropes are pretty much identical and the length of the pool's the same. They don't go, oh, it's the Olympics. Let's throw an extra meter or two on the end to make it a bit tougher. <laughs> you know, it's the same. It's the same. So actually, when I was walking out there, what was helping me settle the nerves is, is I've done this a million times. It's two lengths of the pool. It's, nothing, it's no biggie. There's just a few more eyes on this performance. That's all. But my mind was straight away looking at the similarities. Now then... Fast forward to the pandemic, and now I'm in a position where I'm in overreactive mode, waiting for the response to kick in. And it, my response was, once I started to settle down, was let's look for the similarities and let's not get distracted by the differences just yet. So I sat down and I wrote down, like, do I want to do? What is my passion? What's my mission? Well, I want to get my word out to as many people as possible. Has that changed? No. Brilliant. Similarity. So who do I want to influence? I wrote down all the, the people, the general people that I want to influence. Are they the same as before? Yes. Another similarity. 
And I, I talked about my message. Is my message the same? Yes, identical. The only difference was the stage. That was it. I just couldn't grab an audience the way I could before the pandemic. So the challenge was nothing to do with the mission, nothing to do with the people I was grabbing, the audience I was trying to reach, or the message I was trying to deliver. It was all to do with adapting to the stage. And I just kept it really simple. And in the first few weeks, instead of trying to find work, I just started to create it. And I think there's a big difference when you go out into the world trying to create things as opposed to trying to find them. Now, I hear people say all the time, I'm going to find a job. Trying to find a job, you know, I'm trying to find a job. And I, I say to them, why don't you create one? Because you'll have one forever. And that subtle shift in the difference between finding something and creating something is it's massive. It looks subtle, but it's not. It's huge. And that's exactly how I did it. I looked at the similarities and the differences. I focused my mind on how I could drag those differences across the line. And I just got into a creative mindset and got out there and got cracking. And now I've I've experienced the best business I've ever experienced from January to 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 June. It's been incredible. <laughs> that is beautiful. That is so amazing. I love all of that. Um, I love the two length story. I know that's part of your key message. I'm so glad you told that story here. I think that's such a great life lesson, you know, putting in the work, doing the time, and then realizing that there are so many similarities and, and that strength that you can draw on, I think is great. I, I know you said this in the past as well, like experiments can't fail. If you're looking at your life, a new opportunity, a new business, you know, maybe a challenge you're facing. If you just look at it like an experiment, you know, let, let's play with this. Yeah. An experiment can't fail. I've heard you talk about that. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. I mean, it's been documented so many times in so many people's books and, and stories that, you know, they just went out to experiment. And that experiment can't fail. By definition, you just get results. It's what you do with those results that determine whether it's, it's a failure or not. And, and, and there's a thing I always say to my clients is, have you failed or have you just fallen back? Because if you've fallen back, it's just a case of getting back up. And you never start from the same start point, do you? You always start from experience and wisdom. So actually, when you get back up, you now possibly know which route not to take. Well, that's quite valuable. That's really, really valuable information and intelligence. So, and, and, and again, it, you know, people talk about mindset and, and I talk about that, that viewpoint. Which lens are you looking through? Because if you're looking through the lens of that's a failure and it's going to follow me around, well, guess what? That is a failure and it is going to follow you around. And there's a chance that you're going to repeat it again if you've got your focus on it. But if you look back and you go, hey, look, I've just fallen back, but I've learned a heck of a big lesson, then you've nailed it. Now, I remember there was a time when I finished swimming, I invested in someone's business and I invested my life savings, which was not a lot at the time, but by definition, it was my life savings. So it felt like a lot. And it was at that time when I was desperate to be great at something and I just didn't want to be a novice again. And it was really interesting because within four to six weeks, this business folded up. This, there was no business there. I basically got screwed over and I was angry until I realized a few years on that actually this, that moment was going to save me a lot of heartache and pain. It was a big business lesson. In fact, I'm super, super grateful for it now. And it sounds really strange to say, but I look back and it's made me a better businessman now because it happened. And 
And that's how I'm trying to view the pandemic. You know, how can I make this comeback stronger than the setback I've just had? And how in five years' time can I look back and go, actually, the turning point was COVID. As tough as it was for the world and as horrible as it was, I can either stay there and get bitter or I can actually look towards getting better. And that's my mission. In five years' time, I'm going to go, five, five, yeah, five years' time, I'm going to look back and say, that was the turning point and, you know, I'm, I'm blessed for it. I love that. What an amazing mindset and what a way, what an amazing way to reframe the, you know, the, the things that happen in our life that always seem like they're, they're our biggest challenges or obstacles that we just can't, can't get over and just using them as an opportunity. I think that's amazing. What does it mean to you to have a swim school, um, in partnership with your wife and be working with, um, kiddos? Oh, it is just incredible. Honestly, Casey, yeah. It's it's a I keep calling it a small family business. You know we've got nearly a thousand children in our hometown um, who swim with us every week, which is just crazy. Obviously during COVID we've had to massively reduce that, and that that's been painful. But you know we had to make a start, and we're slowly crawling back and coming back. And the prospect of getting more children swimming just makes me smile because my mission is not to find the next Olympian. My mission is just to give children the same start I had. You know, I remember my swimming teacher. I remember how she made me feel. I remember leaving the lesson at quarter past nine on a Saturday morning and walking home, jumping on the bus and going back home and just thinking, that was amazing. I can't wait till next Saturday. And she did that for me. And I see children walk in the door and come to their swimming lessons through our business day after day with that same look on the face that I had and that same feeling they had when they leave. And when we do that to a generation of children, we provide them with that, they teach their children. They realize the importance of it and the cycle continues. When we don't, guess what? That cycle continues too. And this is the beautiful thing about that passing the baton, if you like, passing the passion is, you know, like I said, it's not about finding the next Olympian. It's about inspiring children to do something that they didn't think they could do. And swimming is such a personal journey I say this to people all the time. Swimming is a personal journey. You can't get your mom to do your laps for you. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work like that. And my coach used to say that to me on the poolside. You know, you, you, your mom can't do your press-ups for you. Give me two more. <laughs> and it's such a powerful, powerful way to kind of pass over to go, listen, this is yours. I get that you're coughing and spluttering now, but in six months' time, you won't be. And when they get those badges, when they get those certificates, when they get those rewards, that's theirs. They've done it. You know, yeah, they've been carted around and it's been paid for for them, but they've done the lengths. And that's, I think that's the beautiful thing, not only about sport, but the thing I'm just in love with swimming about. That's so awesome, man. You're, you're making me want to start swimming. I normally just tell people like, look, if you, if you see me swimming, you better swim because something bad, it really bad is happening. It's probably a shark. This is just so inspiring. I'm like so excited. Is there anything else you're really excited about for the future? <laughs> yeah, I, I think we're in an era now where the pace of change is not going to get any slower, Casey. It's not, it, it's only set to get faster and I've just been doing a workshop um, with a business around being agile. So I was working with my sports psychologist and we were working with a team of 50 um, businesses, 50 CEOs. And we were, we were talking about the fact that the next big thing we feel, and you mentioned it earlier on, is just being agile. It's just being willing and able to, to move when the world 
moves. And COVID has taught us that we can either sit crying into our cereal, talking about yesteryear, <laughs> or we can just get cracking with the new landscape and just try and look through a different lens. And that's the bit that I'm excited about because I feel as though this year has been a big test for me personally. and I've really grasped it. As many times as I doubted it, as many times as I tried to resist it, as many times as I wanted to just go back to the old, I kept turning up in my office and just committing to the new. And that for me is what I'm really excited about. Mm, man, I love that. Dude, this has been such an amazing conversation. I've learned so much. I'm seriously it's like super inspired sitting here right now. Um this awesome. is this is a <laughs> difficult question to ask after a conversation like this where there's just been so many gems of really inspiring wisdom. If you just had one simple thing to tell a listener, like what would that be? And how how could you even choose just one thing? <laughs> oh, I would say take your own advice. I, I definitely genuinely believe inherently we know what is right for us, but I do feel as though we push it away at times. And that's what I say to people, you know, you know, the answers to your problems, you know, the answers to, you know, the solutions to some of them. And I believe if you're brave enough and you take that step and you follow that intuition, it, it holds something really, really exciting. I mean, life changing, exciting for you. You've just got to be brave enough to tap into it. That's awesome. What a great way to end this conversation. Chris, um, where would you like us to send people to connect with you? And what does it look like to work with you? Ah, cool. Yeah, so um, I'm obviously a guest speaker, speaking on various platforms um, around the world, working with companies like Microsoft, which has just been a dream come true, and wow. Under Armour, which again, another dream come true. So I'm working with businesses large and small around the world, which is great, sharing my two-length story. Um, coaching, um, my email address is info at chriscookgb.com. My, my Twitter is at chriscookgb. And my Instagram is Chris Cook Coaching. Um, so yeah, feel free to reach out, connect. I would love to link and LinkedIn as well as Chris Cook. Gotcha. Yeah, that's great. That's cool that you're working with Under Armour. I know you already mentioned you like free stuff, so I hope you get some free stuff out of that. <laughs> yeah, it is that that is my guilty pleasure. I love Under Armour stuff. I'm fully kitted out all the time. I love it. <laughs> that's great. Chris Cook, man, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for everything that you've done in your career. Thank you for all the life lessons that you've gathered and being willing to share them. I, I think it's so cool that you're working with some of those major, major corporations, but I could just hear your voice light up when you talk about working with the kiddos as well. And I think that's a, a really oh. great sign of somebody who is following their bliss and is really successful at what they set out to do. And I just, I'm, I'm super inspired by you and I'm, I'm so grateful for you and your work and for coming onto our show today. Oh, Casey, thank you so much. I've loved every second of it and keep up the great work. You, you're spreading some great messages here. Oh, thanks, man. We really appreciate it. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.